Hello and welcome to UW Oshkosh Police Department's UWOPD On The Mic podcast. This is a podcast developed by the UW Oshkosh Police Department that focuses on having authentic conversations around safety, policing, resources, and questions that we hear from our community members. The idea is to provide our community members with answers to questions that will ultimately increase their desire to partner with us and really other law enforcement agencies that will help them solve problems, reduce the fear in our community, and build stronger relationships with each other. And today I'm here with Dr. Joe Peterson, and we're going to talk about uh, active threat response training. And so I'm just going to pass it off to you so you can introduce yourself, and then we'll see how we go from there. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Joe Peterson. I'm a professor over in the Department of Geology here at UW Oshkosh. And we've been partnering on active threat, active shooter training for, gosh, over five, six years now, something like that. Might, might even be closer to 10. Yes, it's probably pushing that, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm happy to, to be on the, on the show and bring a, bring a podcast version of what we, what we do in our, in our training sessions. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And I think the idea here is that Joe and I do a training, I don't know, we probably do maybe a half a dozen of these every semester. Mm-hmm. And there's always requests in the middle of those requests to kind of do some more training. And we just thought this would be a great opportunity to make it available whenever somebody needs it until they can get to a training. So right. uh, Dr. Peterson brings a, a pretty interesting perspective, which he'll share about. And I just like to share a little bit too. So I've worked in law enforcement for about 18 years and probably 12 to 15 years ago, I really did zero in on how do we be better prepared for an active threat response. So I mm-hmm. asked to go to some training and, uh, you know, pretty much ever since I've done some research, I went to some training that got me some national certifications on how to teach police officers across the country, active threat response. I think, you know, I, I've actually was pondering this. I think it probably has been almost nine years since Dr. Peterson and I started presenting. Mm-hmm. It really started when you came into my training one day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was new to campus, uh, relatively new. And I had seen an email that, that you were doing one of these training sessions. And so I thought I'd go to it. This is a, a topic that's very personal to me because when I was a graduate student at Northern Illinois University in 2008, I actually had an active shooter situation in my classroom. So, and, and you know, personally, this has been something I've really enjoyed working on with you and for the campus community as well, because surviving something like that, you always kind of want to it's this thing you carry with you, right? And you want to do something with it. And I don't want to get involved in politics because that, that just becomes polarized. But this is a way of actually taking a really horrible thing and you know, kind of doing something with it that's positive and trying to promote safety on campus. So, so it's been good for me. I hope it's been good for everybody who's come to our sessions and hopefully it'll be good for, uh, for the listeners as well. Yeah, thank you so much for coming and doing this because I think you know, even though you're saying it's healing and it's positive, it also can be wearing. I think even. Oh, in- yeah. I mean, I think there was a couple of summers ago, there was something going on on campus. And I think we had to do like two of these in one day. And that was a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember watching yeah. you going, I think we should pause for yeah. a little while. Yeah, so. it was. It, it can be. But, um, and, and you know, the reason that we're, we're talking about this, the reason we keep doing these these sessions is this is a real problem. People can agree to disagree on solutions and causes, but I think we can all agree it's a problem. So, uh, you know, there's the fatigue of constantly hearing about it on the news. Yeah, there can be some fatigue from doing back-to-back-to-back workshops, but overall, it's something I'm really happy to do. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I think, you know, for the listeners out there, so usually when people get into the room and we're about to set up for a training, we'll both introduce ourselves a little bit. 
And then we just talk about a few things. And the first thing is typically we joke about a Rolodex. So if you're out there and you're listening to this thing and, and you're not sure what a Rolodex is, I usually describe it in a certain way, but I'll just leave that to your imagination. But it's basically just this device Google. that, yeah, that, <laughs> you can Google it. Yeah. Google it. G- Google the device. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a device that basically spins around and has index cards, right? Even whether it's a mm-hmm. recipe or an address, but the idea of the whole Rolodex during our training is really just to talk about how you could have one of those if you envision it inside of your mind. And, um, you know, for everything that you do during a day, whether it's turning the key in a lock or even putting your key in the lock or sitting at a desk or talking on a microphone or, you know, having a conversation with somebody, there's literally an index card in your brain Rolodex for everything, for everything you do, for anything you've learned, for anything you've experienced, for anything that you've gone through, whatever it might be. But maybe you don't have an index card for active threat. How do you manage that type of a situation? And so uh, the idea or the, the key takeaway here is that we want to kind of insert that Rolodex. So at the end of the podcast or the training that you would attend, you'd have a Rolodex that kind of teaches you how to manage a situation. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to go through one of these situations. I hope nobody ever has to again, but should you find yourself in a, in an environment or in a situation where there is somebody trying to threaten you and your safety or you and, and others, hopefully that's not the first time you've ever thought about what would I do? It's the same thing, you know, our, you know kids doing fire drills or tornado drills, or they do Alice drills now too. It's a way of preparing you, right? It's not meant to make you paranoid or alarmed all the time, but you have thought about this before. Yeah. Love that. That's the idea. And also uh, today, and, and during while we record this podcast, we're really thinking we're going to break this into two parts. So yeah. this will be part one. We're really going to kind of lean in on the front of our training, and then uh, we'll come back and do a part two that talks about, yeah. you know, if you're caught in an active threat situation, we'll, we'll teach you how to manage that situation as well. But what, like Dr. Peterson said, we don't, the intent of this isn't for you to be freaked out by everything that's going on around you. It's just to be thinking about the things that are going on around you. Because I think we get complacent, right? Mm-hmm. You get into your own ways you're not really paying attention to things and it's really easy to feel comfortable and think this is never going to happen here i'm never going to have to deal with that right and that's exactly what i thought at northern illinois university just you know a couple of months before it happened you know there's the it's that idea of bad things happen to everybody else well we're everybody else to everybody else right yeah so so yeah i like to think this first part is more how do we avoid these from happening in the first place, you know, to the best of our ability? How do we report information? How do we reach out when something doesn't feel right? And hopefully this is where it ends. And then next time we can talk more about the, the actual survival strategies. Yeah. So let's, let's share a little bit of background on uh, how we manage this situation. So um, the first thing that we usually go through in this presentation is just a little bit about what active threat is. So, you know, purely by definition, or if you if you Google or if you're looking at information related to this, you're going to see active threat or active shooter or active killer or I don't even know. There's there's a lot of phrases out there right now because of the mechanism people have used to harm other people. So uh, we'll just give you a little bit of a definition. Is an active threat is an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a confined and populated area. They could be using a knife or a vehicle or a firearm or, you know, other type of object that would harm somebody. These situations happen really quickly. And typically in, in the 20-ish year time frame of situations that we look at, I would say 
national average is about 10 to 15 minutes or less that these situations start and end in that window of time. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit of that is changing and Dr. Peterson will share some of his story. But the other piece too, is that uh, a third of these attacks are actually over in less than a minute. So that's true. And so in the situation I was in, um, I think the entire attack took place in less than five minutes. By the time the first 911 call went through, police were in the building in the space within 30 seconds, which was incredibly fast. But by then, it was already over. The The 10 to 15 minute time that, that we read about, that, again, it's an average that goes back even into the 90s. And things really started to change, though, around 1999. That's when the Columbine shooting happened in Littleton, Colorado. When that attack happened, police responded the way that they were trained to respond to these types of situations at the time, which was get there and secure the scene and then wait for SWAT to show up with all the cool gear and, and, and handle it from there. Well, at Columbine, when that happened, you know, they were waiting. And meanwhile, the attack was still happening. People were still dying inside, uh, inside the school. So that's changed now where the response is enter the space immediately and try to stop the killing. And so that has really brought the, the time down. The people that are doing this know that, this is going to be you know, not going to be a, a long, day-long standoff or anything like that. So we can use that a little bit to our advantage as a way of thinking like, okay, well, if I hide in this room and I lock the door, there is a lower chance that you know they're going to try to shoot the lock off the door and get in there because they know they don't have a lot of time. And I think the other piece of information that couples well with what you were just talking about is that typically the national police response time is about three minutes in a city. So if these situations happen a third of the time in less than one minute, yeah. law enforcement's not on scene. And so a little bit of the idea is in part two, we'll talk about how do you manage that time exactly. as a person. Exactly. So, uh, and, and these, you know, as, as we mentioned before, that these are incidents that do continue to happen and they uh, are actually happening at an increased rate. A new report that came out, well, new, it's about a, uh, a year old now, from the FBI shows uh, a steady increase in active threat events. In 2021, we had 61 of these in the United States alone. So there, there's a reason why we're talking about this, and, and there's a reason why you know, there, there's more and more resources being offered about these types of events. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, too, is a, a few years ago, I, I took a week off and drove mm-hmm. over and left, and I had some guys... Just for EAA, I did it. I thought it'd be fun. Yeah, And uh, I got to meet some guys from Australia who were in the van, and I was taking them to the airport in Appleton. And I remember them being in the van, and they were like, oh, it's like super safe here. It was safe. And I'm like, yeah. Like, what, like <laughs> why, why didn't you not think it was safe, you know? And uh, they're like, well, I mean, we watched the news, and it just seems like there's a shooting every day in the United States. And we thought we didn't know. And, I, and it just hit me. It hit me really hard. Like, wow. Just think about that. Do you ever... You ever watch the news about situations that are transpiring in a different part of the country or a different mm-hmm. part of the world where all you see are the negative things in the news and then you end up with a depiction in your mind of like, I don't know if I can go there. That's what yeah. it was for these Australians. You know what I mean? Yep. And so the relevancy of this conversation is just to help folks understand the importance of what we're trying to accomplish here in this, yeah. this discussion. Yeah. It's an unfortunate truth, you know, that, that these, these keep happening. And if we think about where they're happening, there was, you know, just one that happened today in in, uh, in Kentucky, and it was actually at a bank. And now the, I know officers are still on the scene there, so we don't know a lot about what happened yet. But that kind of tracks, uh, you know, a vast majority of these, again, going from that 
Department of Homeland Security and FBI report. Um, this is a, the different report. This one was looking at mass attacks in public spaces between 2016 and 2020. Found that vast majority of these happen in open spaces and, and businesses. Now, we usually focus in our training sessions and in our discussions here on campus about you know, mass attacks at uh, institutions of education. And that's because we're at one. But really, the information that we're talking about here is applicable anywhere. But if we do want to break it down, a vast majority of these types of attacks are happening in open spaces or businesses. Uh, in a Department of Homeland Security report that came out that looked at mass attacks in public spaces from 2016 to 2020. Now, we focus on education because that's where we are. We're an education institution, but this is really applicable anywhere. But just, you know, you hear a lot, school shootings, right? That was the phrase that you would hear a lot. Really, attacks on schools in general make up roughly 10%, a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on the year, of these types of attacks. There's something we're obviously very sensitive to here, but other places include bars and restaurants, uh, healthcare facilities. A lot of them happen in bars and restaurants and, and, and stores. So again, it's it's not always just schools, but it is, it, it, it's other places as well, but the information really is applicable all the same. Yeah, and I think the idea behind sharing some of these location types is just to think this really could happen anywhere, right? Yeah. Like we're we're on a college campus and, you know, the situation that you were involved in was on a college campus and I'm the acting chief at a campus. And so we zero in a little bit on that. But this is is important information for any time, anywhere. Yeah. You, you could be at a restaurant, you could be in a theater, you could be outside at a concert, you could be at a bar, you, you know, I mean, it just, when you look at the news or you could be at a bank, you know, I mean, just be on a little bit more of an alert. And yeah. this is where we just want you to think, what seems normal, what's out of place, exactly. you know, and, and when we get to the point where we talk about how to manage your mindset when you're in a location, it's not about being alarmed. It's just about taking a few seconds to go, I could do that. That might help me right. think about something differently if something right. happens. So, right. And if we, when it comes to the, the individuals that do these types of things, we always want to know the motive. We want to know why someone would do it. And the reality is, there's almost no way of absolutely knowing why someone chooses to do something this horrible. Uh, that being said, in that same mass attack report that Homeland Security put out, they did you know, interview people or uh, that were affiliated with these types of attacks or at least looked at, at some background information on them. Uh, and when, when you look at why people seem to be motivated to do these things, uh, a lot of it comes from grievances, whether it's uh, work place or a domestic or some kind of personal grievance, um, you know, that makes up uh, a significant portion of, of these types of, of, of attacks. Yet when you break down other reasons too, ideological or political beliefs or some kind of bias related uh, viewpoint makes up about 18%, um, psychotic symptoms. So there, there comes the, the, the mental health aspect of this does make up about 14. And then there's about 18% that's just undetermined. What I find really interesting about this uh, particular report is one of the things we do keep hearing on the news whenever one of these attacks happens is, you know, someone did this because they just want to kill or because they want to become famous. And really, that makes up, you know, six, seven percent. Uh, notoriety or fame is really not a, a strong uh, motivator for, for these individuals. It really is very personal in one way or another. So if we, if we look at a block of time, uh, and again, this one's a little bit dated, but look at, say, from like 1909 to 2009, 
Uh, we've got about 272 attacks at institutions just of higher education. So who's doing this? Well, of those 272 attacks, about 60% were current or former students, and about 11% were current or former employees. 20% show an indirect affiliation with the school. This could be a spouse or a domestic partner or just somebody who, you know, they're uh, someone they're, they're somewhat directly or indirectly affiliated with works at the university. And then 9% no affiliation at all. They just decide this is where I'm going to do it. Uh, at the NIU shooting that I that I um, experienced and survived, that actually fell right in with that first 60%. Uh, the, the, the gunman was a former student and decided to come back to that campus to do the attack because he knew the room. He knew there'd be a lot of people in that room, in that building on, on that day. Yeah, this slide I find kind of interesting because I know it's a little dated. It's about, I mean, it's about 100 years worth of data, which is why we kept this one in here, but 91%, so 60, 11, and 20 are kind of like the somehow connected to yeah. the place where it happens. To me, that kind of says there's always an opportunity to grab some sort of information that's floating out there. Exactly. You might see something, you might hear something, somebody else might hear something. There's something floating, right? And I, I and this is just surmising, but I would be surprised if attacks at other places like businesses or churches or restaurants follow a similar trend. Maybe it's current or former employees or patrons or um, my you know, partner goes to that business a lot. I would expect a similar trend. Yeah, uh, People don't seem to, that, that 9%, no affiliation to the school in this case, that seems to tell that it's that's not happening very often. People are going to do these attacks at places that they have some kind of connection to. Yeah. And Usually. I don't know, you know, this is, again, this is where we're, we're speaking from experience, things we've read, mm -hmm. reports like that. I mean, there's some new things coming out. Like, I mean, the, the Michigan State situation that happened not that long ago, uh, as far as the early reports, it looks like this person was not affiliated, but I would right. say they lived close by. Mm -hmm. Is that, I'm not sure that's an affiliation, yeah. but is, is that somebody who's nearby the area who sees a large risk target type of thing? So it's exactly. just thinking about like what could be out there that I could be paying attention to. And as we continue to talk through these things, just be thinking about what that yeah. looks like. We also hear a lot of, uh, in the aftermath of these types of attacks, we hear that, you know, the perpetrator just snapped. I mean, the first news stories that always come out are, you know, quiet person kept to themselves and all of their friends and loved ones are surprised. And that's typical of, you know, first round media report coming out when they don't have a lot of information on this person yet. Maybe they've just gotten a name and this is the quickest search they could do. In reality, though, evidence indicates that about 93% of attackers have planned, considered, and prepared to some degree in advance of the attack. At the, the NIU shooter, for example, there's evidence he planned up to six months beforehand. Interviews with either attackers or loved ones uh, show that about 81% of them talk about their plans with someone before doing it. Now, this isn't, almost never are we looking at something where it's like literal, like guess what I'm going to yeah. do next week. But there's some information coming out. They've discussed other types of shootings a lot, uh, more than, you know, from a, almost an academic perspective of like, why does this keep happening? But almost in a way of, of glamorizing yeah, I, I, I would almost argue, you know, maybe it's even statements like, you know, I could really, or man, if I, you know, if this happened, I would. Here's how I do it. Yeah, you like know, those yeah. types of statements seem overreactive to a normal situation. And in the context of a person you might know, they might be like, well, that's just them overreacting. Yeah. 
But you should start taking note of those things, right? And just if it if it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stick up a little bit, like this is where you might be a little too close to realize what could well, be coming uh, together. It, in in the in the immediate aftermath of the NIU shooting, I mean, police were still on the scene. The, the the perpetrator's car is still in the parking lot. There's the yellow tapes going up around everything. Um, we found out later that he had deactivated his phone. He removed the SIM chip from his phone uh, prior to walking into the classroom. But according to phone records, somebody was texting him when the news first broke uh, that there'd been a shooting at, at Northern Illinois University. And it was one of his friends who had read that news report and had texted him saying, oh, did you hear about what happened at NIU? That wasn't you, was it? Ha ha. So there was some type of um, you know joking that they had done where it was a casual enough discussion. And again, I, I, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to blame friends and family for the actions of this individual, and I wouldn't, not in this in, in instance or in any other. But it kind of gives you a little bit of insight into what kind of person is, is going to do this. You know, over 66% of active shooter incidents, multiple people know about this attack prior to it happening. They know something. They know this person hasn't been acting normal, like their their own normal lately. They haven't been behaving in a way that's that's typical of them. Maybe they're lashing out more. And there's a number of different things that I don't want to give people the impression that, you know, if your significant other is having a bad day, that they might be going to do something terrible like this. But if they're having a bad day and they're acting outside of their normal bounds of, of kind of regular behavior, then they need some kind of help. Yeah, they I need something. As you were talking about that, and I know we've talked about this so many times, I was just thinking, you know, he's kind of talking about how it's almost just a need for somebody to reach out, you know, 61, right? There were 61 yeah. incidents in 2021. There's probably a very large number of situations that didn't turn into a situation where Absolutely. somebody harmed another person because somebody was willing to step in say something, say, hey, do you need something? Somebody needs a resource. You know, I mean, we hear cries for help prior to any situation like this occurring that sometimes we're like, well, Joe, you're my really good friend. I don't want to throw you under the bus and say like, yeah. oh, you should get some help. Mm, maybe they're waiting for you to ask for them. Mm -hmm. To you, are, Is everything okay? Well, mental health is still very much stigmatized, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's not easy for everybody to say, I need help. And especially if they're going through something that's, that's making them unhappy and they're becoming violent, you know, it starts with, you know, violent thoughts and then some kind of violent behaviors. It's not easy. The, the more deep down they get into that hole, it's harder for them to, to, you know, get that help that they need. So, you know, I, I agree that I think, you know, we've got 61 incidences, you know, just, you know, in the last year or so. More, more, most likely. But then there's a number of incidences, I'm sure, that were stopped just from somebody, you know, seeing something out of the ordinary with this individual and choosing to reach out. And and so hopefully we can get more people doing that. And, you know, kind of we got to take care of each other. And there's another stat out there that says, you know, greater than something like more than 66% of these people share it with more than one person. I mean, you could, again, probably not like, hey, I'm going to do this, but there's enough out there where you could reach out and one of those multiple people could reach out and say, Hey, I think we could help you with something. And that's the hard part because you've got multiple people that know something is wrong. How do we get that information into one place where we can start putting that puzzle together? Right? So this is something that we, we do in our workshops a lot, which this kind of roadmap to potential violence where you have a non, it's almost like a timeline. You have this nonviolent lifestyle 
there's a moment when the individual decides, I'm going to do this. And then we have a timeline of events that builds up to the attack and then aftermath and recovery. And we want to we wanna stop things as close to that seed moment as possible, right? If that's where we really want to intervene. So we have a, a window there to, to intervene. Some typical roles that, you know, we might see on a college campus, right? Like what we do in these workshops is we have a little bit of role-playing where we have people read off some hypothetical scenarios. Uh, and then we ask them, well, how would you feel? Is this, how do you think this information should be handled? Should you report it to the police? Should you report it to something? Is there something else you should do? Or is this just a shrug your shoulders type incident? So uh, we, can, we can do that a little bit here and give people an idea of, of what kind of, of scenarios we're talking about. And, and just for anybody listening, they can kind of think about how they might respond to types of situations. I would say as we do this too, um, you know, we put together this situation based on past history, experience, research. Like this mm-hmm. isn't a real situation, but it's based on yeah, it's things that we've read. Inspired by, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. The other thing I would say too is that this is a little student focused. So, you know, if you're not, it, it doesn't have to be a student. It could be a mm-hmm. business place. It could be an employee. It could be anybody who does a situation like this, maybe needs help or whatever that is. But as you hear us read these things and we talk through them, just don't get stuck in the mindset that it's always going to be a student. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could swap out any other type of career, right. Um, in this, you know, we could be, be a police department and you're talking about other people that you work with and and so yeah feel free to to mentally modify this as as you need so do you want to read the first one and then sure. you and i can just talk through what we think about it sure so the first one here is um i'm a community advisor from a residence hall where a student lives he comes to my room and shares that he's been thinking about suicide so right off the bat that's kind of an easy one because if you are a community advisor in a dorm, that's part of your job, right? Is you have to report that you have to get this student to the resources that they need. Yeah. I think that's a great starting point because it's pretty clear that that person needs something, yeah, you know, they're, they're if saying it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, suicide ideation is something that we all need to take seriously. I think as a country, we do a pretty good job with that, you know, and this, I, I think too, you, if you take out active threat, out of this whole entire conversation, that person just needs some support. Yeah. So, yeah. So next, the next one I have is uh, a student meets with me for his scheduled counseling appointment. He shares that he has been watching videos on YouTube of people harming animals. He also shares that he sometimes fantasizes about harming other people. I mean, we didn't like rent, we placed these out. We didn't randomly put these (laughs) out, but these, that's kind of a big red flag, right? (laughs) Yeah. This one very clear. I think, you know, the only thing that we, I think most people are going to say, okay, this is a problem, but it's in a counseling appointment, right? So counseling appointments are confidential. I think that's really important to consider is that, you know, you're going to have confidence in a a counseling appointment. You can share information. That's the whole idea behind that. But most counselors have a balancing test, right, where they're going to balance between confidentiality and safety of a community, and then they'll determine how they use that information. And so, at UW Oshkosh, and I can't say that this is the same for everywhere in the country, but there's a, you know, a level where they would maybe reach out. It depends. For the student, they might actually ask to sign a release uh, to go into a care team, which we'll talk a little bit more about the care team in a little bit. But then that person's name would come up at the care team and somebody around the table would say, hey, like I can take this one. I can help the student out. 
and, and again, I know this is a hypothetical situation, but it's, again, based on some, some real life things, if you've got a person in a counseling session and they mention this, well, we're already off to kind of a good start there. They're in counseling and they're opening up. Yeah. So yeah, they, you would like to think they would also be open to further resources to explore this thing that they're doing. Uh, but it's not something you would just ignore or just jot down a note of. I would hope the counselor wouldn't just jot down a note and then move on to, you know, tell me about your mother kind of a thing. Yeah. It's, it's much more serious. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, that comes with a little bit of training. And if, you know, you're a counselor or you're in the counseling area, it would be nice to have some training and threat assessment and what that looks like and how you take it to the next level. Here at UW Oshkosh, we have what's called the care team, which is kind of a low-level team that works on all kinds of situations that involve students. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just to connect students to a resource, right? We, we basically have all of the service resources sitting in a room. This scenario hits the table that involves a student, and then somebody around the table says, oh, that's us. We got that. We'll proactively reach out. Mm-hmm. We'll figure out what kind of things that might help the student. If it's something like this where it's like, oh, this, this person, I mean, they're fantasizing about harming other people they've watched videos of harming animals that's concerning that might reach uh the next level which is what we have here uwo would be our threat assessment team and then uh, you know that team would actually figure out what are the next steps what do we need to do what type of conversations do we have is there any information that needs to be looked into and we we do that here at oshkosh uh, and any any of our three campuses and then it's really about at a more urgent and higher level connecting resources for the student. Yeah. So I have another one here. Um, uh, I'm a professor who teaches a class in sociology. A student in my class hands in a research paper on the subject of the frequency of mass shootings in America during the last 20 years. Well, I mean, so sociology course, topic being mass sh- frequency of mass shootings. I mean, there's a reason you and I are sitting here talking about this right now and hopefully people listening, right? is because this is a, it's a topical and an important issue. Yeah, and I think we've actually mentioned like over the last 20 years a few times already. So. Yeah, so th- this is, I wouldn't be alarmed by this. You know, this seems par for the course. If, you, if you've got somebody taking a class in sociology and they're assigned to write a paper on something in, you know, current events, this would definitely fall into that realm. Well, is there any, is there any type of situation that this scenario would make you do anything differently uh yeah so let's say i'm a sociology professor and i assign a paper on just a current event and this person hands in you know like something they've done a lot of research on if it i I guess what i'm trying to say is what was the actual assignment and so maybe that's the question if if i received a paper in any class you know in geology if i assign a paper on geological history of baraboo and somebody hands in a paper on mass shootings the last 20 years i'm going to be alarmed yeah. that's a little strange um, understand the assignment yeah um but in this context of just how we've written it i would say this isn't something i would be alarmed about um because of the context yeah. and and if it if that was if the assignment was something topical this is certainly within that that realm so this is one where i wouldn't be probably just as written probably wouldn't be uh, you know, concerned about. I'd be more interested in what they wrote, but not not in an alarmed way. Yeah, that sounds fair. All right, the next one I have here is uh, actually works out really well. I'm working as a patrol officer for 
UWO Police Department. I notice a male subject lingering around the outside of an academic building around 1 o'clock in the morning. I continue on patrol and later notice the same subject staring at the same building around 1.20. So I stop to see what's going on. So about 20 minutes of just hanging out at a building, staring at it. And I think, you know, for me, this is concerning. I think for most people in the general population, they're thinking, yeah, this is, I mean, it's weird that somebody be hanging out staring at a building for 20 minutes. Um, does it get you to a point where you're alarmed? Probably not. But as a department, and you know, and I kind of typically push on this one a little bit, one o'clock in the morning on a college campus, it depends if it's like 70 degrees outside, there might be a whole bunch of kids walking around, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and if they've been uh, consuming any alcoholic beverages, they might just get lost staring at a cool building like Sage, which is just neat, you know? And I always kind of joke about how I think there's goats up on the ceiling. Yeah, right. Like they've eating, got the grass up there. the grass up there. So I'm just, for anybody's listening, I'm just kidding. But there, there actually is a roof that has grass on it. So it's... It's a very green building. It's a cool building, but one, two in the morning, that's a little odd. 20 minutes, yeah. So this this one's just a good thing. Like, I think for, for law enforcement staff, we're totally going to stop. We're going to have a conversation. We call it here at UW Oshkosh a social contact. It's just an opportunity for us to have a conversation and say, hey, how's it going? What's up? And um, maybe the student is struggling with some anxiety, or maybe they something happened in, at, at home that they just needed to be outside, or maybe they got in a disagreement with somebody or maybe they did have a little too much to drink or there's so many what ifs like what they could be doing out there but it's just an opportunity for us and our police department totally stop and have a conversation and see what's going on yeah so i got another one here um once again i'm a community advisor from the residence hall i notice a student in the lounge with his laptop reading an article on the internet about guns so and again as written you, you know, you walk into the main lounge of the floor in the dorms. There's somebody sitting there on their laptop. That's probably not unusual to see, but they're looking up guns. I mean, this is Wisconsin. It's a big hunting and fishing state. Uh, people own firearms for, you know, target practicing or for hunting. That shouldn't be alarming by itself, right? Or maybe maybe they're researching a paper on guns. Who knows? Um, to me, what would alarm me about this would be their reaction. If I walked in and said, oh, hey, what are you looking at? And they slam that laptop, that laptop shut, that's strange. Um, if they said, oh, yeah, you know, looking at a 12-gauge for deer season. Okay. It's probably a little different, yeah. Yeah. So in this case, it, it wouldn't, the, the scenario wouldn't alarm me, but it would get me to ask the question. It would, it would make me want to have an interaction and then see how that interaction went. Um, you know, this could be the same type of thing as, you know, our hypothetical person staring at the building at one in the morning. It's something that's going to make you stop and go, hey, what's going on? Friendly enough, hopefully, right? And, you know, how's their reaction? Um, you know, in this case, if the person reacts really nervous, then, okay, maybe we need to ask the next ask question. the next question yep. and go from there. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great depiction of what would occur there. And I think even for folks who work in residence halls or even if you're a student or an employee walking around and you saw something like that, I mean, sometimes it's just about, hey, how's it going? Or, hey, what's up? Or, hey, that's that's a neat looking gun. Like, I have some relatives Mm -hmm. who hunt too. I mean, you don't have to say, hey, are you gonna? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just start a conversation and see how that goes. So. All right, so the next one I have here, I'm a professor who teaches a class in political science. 
a student in my class who is typically quiet and introverted suddenly expresses a strong opinion about the subject we are discussing in class. I always like this one. Yeah, interesting. 2023 political science. I mean, quiet and introverted is probably the key here. Like if you're quiet and introverted and you suddenly express a strong opinion, but gosh, that might be the first time we really got you on something. Yeah. and Everyone's right. got their thing. <laughs> yeah, like you finally finally found what engages you. And I think, too, like every three days there's something you could have a controversy about sure. in a political science nature. So the the idea here is that it's out of context, you know, but may, maybe not. Like I, I always think for somebody who's teaching a class, if if it seemed out of context, I might just go up to him after class and be like, hey, I, I love that yeah. uh, what you shared in there. You saw some passion or whatever, like – everything okay or did you just get really involved in that it might just again it's that question you know yeah and i've had students that were very quiet in class and getting geology courses you know there's not a lot to get too worked up about uh but at some point maybe midway through the semester they just get comfortable and they start engaging in the class more more vocally um so you know the, the way we have that one written is you know they're they're you know suddenly a lot more vocal Again, what are they doing? Are they suddenly yelling at people? Well, that's a problem. You know, this is turning into like a like a Jerry Springer type thing for those who remember that. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's okay. That's a problem. But if it's just somebody who's engaged, then great. Again, context is so important in a lot of these. Yeah, and I think if it caused you a- alarm, I think some of the things we talk about too are there's a few things, right? You could go up to the student and say, hey, how's it going? That was great. Yeah. I love the discussion. Anything else going on you want to chat about? Or if you're not really at that level of comfort with the student or you don't want to do that, I think you can look up other classes and connect with another teacher yeah. and say, hey, I, I saw something a little off today. Have you seen anything in mm-hmm. your classes? And that might give you a reason to either ask or not ask the question because exactly. it resolves the issue. So. Right. Um, so I have another one here. Let's see. Um, kind of similar to that one, though. So I'm a professor teaches a class in calculus. Over the past week or so, I've observed odd behavior from one of my students in my class. It's normally very quiet, but has been very outspoken several times in my class recently. Now, again, we wrote these, and I put odd in quotes. What the heck and is it's, odd? it's calculus. And it's like calculus. <laughs> so, I mean, but what is odd behavior? I, I guess, you know, I would, I think when we were coming up with these, I meant more like the student is being a little more um, argumentative, seems stressed. Which, again, of course, can do that. And most of the time when we have students here, they're not just taking one class, nor is it the only thing going on in their lives. Yeah. yeah. So I could see calculus being the class, perhaps, that is just the final straw for somebody, and they just, they're ticked off, and they want to, they're tired of just being quiet in the room, and they want to say something. Or maybe they don't feel like they're being treated fairly, or whatever it is. Well, and I, I sometimes think, too, like, do they feel like, I'm not getting the help I need in here. I'm not, I don't understand this. I don't have a tutor. I'm not really connecting with the person who's teaching it. Like there could be so many things, you know? And, and uh, yeah, it could be a million things. And just like in the last situation, having that, that contact with, with the individual is so important. Maybe it's an email. So it's not, you know, asking them to stay after class, which might stress them out more. Just sending the email like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm concerned because this is not like you and how you normally are in class. Is there anything I can do to help? That's what I would do. I don't think I'd be calling, obviously, the police over somebody who's stressed out about calculus. But I would try to reach out to them, especially if this is not, you know, their normal behavior. Though, to be fair, if I had a student who was like this all the time in class from first day to the end, 
I'd probably be sending those emails a lot earlier going, Hey, what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Just, you know, let's take a breather here and, and let's get you the help that you need. All right. Sticking with the class theme here. I'm a professor who teaches a class in geography, a student in my, who's in my class who normally has fairly good attendance, hasn't shown up for class for the past two weeks. Geography. I said geography. Geography, not geology. No, we, we have no problems like that. Um, this is a tough one because I teach classes, for example, that have about 100 students and classes that'll have a dozen. And 100 level up to 300 and 400 level. So in those upper level classes where we only have 12 students and one doesn't show up, you can tell right away. And they're usually a little better about communicating. Like, I won't be in class. If I notice a few periods that they're not, gonna, they're not there, I'll, I will reach out. If it's a big pit class and you've got a hundred some students, it's sometimes difficult to note when someone's not there. And I've also had students that just quit showing up, and then I find out at the end of the semester they haven't even like dropped out. They just decided to stop showing up to class. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, when you notice it, I I would say that would be the good time to to reach out and say you know I haven't been seeing you in class. Um, if somebody normally has great attendance and they just stop showing up, yeah, I'm going to reach out. Maybe there's a family emergency. Um, I had a situation with a student last year who this exact same type of thing just stopped showing up. When I reached out to the student, turned out they'd been in a car accident. Mm. And they were going to be okay, but they had some injuries that kept them at home. Uh, but they hadn't even, they didn't know to reach out to the dean of students' office. And so I advised them to do so. And then Pretty soon, all of their professors got the email that this individual had, you know, was going to be home for a while, and it was an excused series of absences. So sometimes, yeah, reach out because you're you're helping them out, getting them various resources that they need. Sometimes it's just getting that communication going. Yeah, I like that because I think, especially in a college setting, that really helps our students continue their path forward, right? Because yeah. they're not thinking about some of those things. So yeah. that's great. So I've got one more here. Uh, back to the community advisor role. Uh, I'm a community advisor in a residence hall on campus. I noticed that one of the students who lives on my floor hasn't been coming out of his room lately. And when I pass him in the hall, he appears to be depressed. I knock on his door to talk with him. So I'm like reaching out, trying to, to make contact about what's going on, but he doesn't really share anything with me. So, I mean, at this point, you know, you're, you're trying to initiate contact. You're already concerned about, you know, their, their well-being, but they just don't want to share. You know, I like this one because this one uh, is a great opportunity to connect this student with the care team, right? This is yeah. kind of a low level. I'm feeling concerned. I have enough concern to even proactively reach out. I think whoever this community advisor is, a, kudos to you, even though I know you're fake, but it's great. Like, right. I, <laughs> I think that's a great, that's a great opportunity to kind of, you're doing a great job. And then the, the way the care team works is typically the resident hall directors, the assistant resident hall directors have enough information about care team that if you went to them and said, hey, I've got this thing going on, they would then get that information to the care yeah. team. And then care team put that person's name on a list, and which sounds horrible, but it's actually great because then those folks in a room are going to say, hey, like this person maybe just needs to talk to somebody. Yeah. You know, and the beauty of UWO and probably any college campus in the country is that you're paying for services that are free. Mm -hmm. You already like, they, yeah, they're already. not free. You pay for them. They come with you. And if you don't use them, then you're kind of paying for it and not using it. And 
they're really professional, great people who are just going to listen yep. to you and, and be available to you. So I love that that's an opportunity to kind of reach out, proactively reach out. And and even though, you know, this whole discussion is about, you know, acts of mass violence, and it doesn't have to be. It, it, it It's getting people the resources that they need to help them with whatever they're they're struggling through. It, yeah, it's also to hopefully not get to the point where it turns into a violent act to themselves or others or anyone. Um, you know, you, you could have just a, a student who's going through a lot of things or just a person going through a lot of things and getting them the resources they need is, is paramount. What we're talking about in, in the context of, of active threat is like absolute worst case scenario, yeah. uh, which as we've already mentioned, does happen uh, at, at an increasing frequency. But let's, I don't want to get lost in that in, in the, you know, to the main point of just getting people resources. You got a student that looks depressed and, and they're not willing to share. Uh, there's clearly something wrong. Let's get them the resources they need so they can just, you know, be better. Yeah, and you already kind of mentioned it too. I mean, the stigma sometimes puts a roadblock up to asking. Yeah. So if you poke at the person and be like, hey, how's it going? That yeah. might be what they needed. That might be just exactly what they were hoping for, yeah. somebody to recognize it. So I got the last one here. Uh, I'm now a librarian on okay. campus. A uh, student comes to the help desks and asks for assistance in researching mental health, mental illness and gun laws. And the student says it's for a class. You know, I think just back to uh, writing a paper about this over the last 20 years, thinking about the acts of violence or active threat situations that have gone on. This is probably pretty similar. And I would say it's at this point where we start saying, you know, I would just ask the next question, like, oh, that's an interesting yeah. topic. Like, what class is that for? And that yeah. may trigger, oh, it's for my sociology class. We were assigned to talk about mass shootings. And there's been an increased frequency in those. So I'm just trying to find some relevant articles or whatever. Yeah. Or uh, hesitation, right? I don't know yeah. which class it's for. I mean, that might be very different. Right, right. Uh, you know, gauging the response and asking the right question is really important. And so we've gone through a number of these scenarios, and some of them, like the first couple, were red flags right out of the gate. Yeah. And then some, not so much, depending on the context. And so why do why do we go through these like this? Well, first is to show that not every situation, you know, do you need to call the police. However, what led us to this discussion was the that 66% of attackers, you know, that of attacks, multiple people know something's wrong beforehand, and how do we get these people together? So we just read through, you know, uh, about 10 scenarios. Hypothetically, what if we're talking about the same student this entire time? So the one who was, you know, talking about, you know, watching YouTube videos of people harming animals is also the one who was looking up guns on the laptop and the one who had the outburst in class and the one you saw at Sage. And stopped showing up to classes. And stopped showing up. All of these things... Now we have a much more clear picture of what we're dealing with, and we can start to see that, you know, and if we added dates to these, we could start seeing when these things were happening. Now, realistically, you know, we, we don't want to get everybody, you know, we're not trying to, like, peer into everybody's lives, you know, and get up in everybody's business. But if you've got, where do you draw that line, though, between wanting to reach out? And that, a lot of it's just circumstantial. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the key to this is that if you aren't sure, you should just talk to somebody. And, and I think what's easier 
said is just that, you know, what if I didn't, if I'm not in law enforcement and I teach a class and you teach a class and I have some concern, I might actually reach out to you, Joe, and say, hey, yeah. like, I just wondered if I can pick your brain about this. And I've, I have done that on the opposite yeah. side where I've had students who maybe made a comment in class and it wasn't enough for me to want to contact, you know, make a formal complaint with Campus PD, but knowing you reached out to you and said, hey, this seems strange. What do you think? Um, and it turned out that it wasn't a dangerous thing, but it, the person needed to stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and sometimes I think too, people will, they'll, they'll listen to this or they'll have gone through a training and they'll be like, Oh my gosh, like I can think of a, an email set from like a, mm-hmm. a, a student that I've emailed 20 times and here's the situation and the spideys were tiggling on my back and yep. I'd never reached out. Well, reach out. It's never too late. Exactly. And I would say sometimes we already know about that person and we've, dissolved any concern but we can help you feel better about it you know or maybe it is something you know maybe it is something that we should chat about and i I mean knowing that over the last 20 years about seven and a half to ten percent of these incidents happen in higher education facilities i mean it's a small percentage that it's going to be an actual severe situation but it's a great opportunity like we've been talking about to reach out to connect the student with a resource yeah or it's a coworker and they need a resource, you know, and I think oftentimes people just want somebody to, to recognize that they're struggling with something and kind of say, Hey, how's it going? You know? Yeah. I, I, I remember right after the shooting happened at NIU, I would have occasionally people come up to me and say, yeah, you know, I, I think I saw that guy on campus like the day before uh, he was you know doing, doing some weird stuff and who knows if they really did or not, you know, but my reaction to them was, well, why, why didn't, if it was so strange, why didn't you say, say something? something about it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't think about it. And I think in most of those cases, they didn't see the person, but we do know that he was on campus the day before kind of walking around doing a trial run. So somebody may have saw, was he doing anything that made anyone, you know, caught their attention? I don't know, but nobody said anything. And again, I'm not blaming them and saying they're responsible, but if you see something, say something, right? We've been hearing it for years. Yeah, and I mean, it, I, I think it's really easy to recognize that hindsight's twenty twenty. When you yeah. can look back at something afterwards, it actually is a much clearer, right? But in the forefront of things, I think people get worried about, well, if I say something and it's not something, mm-hmm. then I'm bothering somebody or they're going to think I'm weird or they're, I'm wasting their time. Well, I can't say that that's not true for everybody. Yeah. But I can tell you for UW Oshkosh and UW Oshkosh Police Department, if you report something to us, we're going to take it seriously every time. We're going to take a look at it. We're going to figure out what it is. We're going to help you understand that it's important to us. I mean, that's how we work together to solve problems. I mean, if you look around the police department, and actually there's some phrases written. It's the same phrase, but it's written in a couple areas. It says, partnering with our community to solve problems. Well, to me, that means it's a partnership between mm-hmm. you and I to do yep. the thing that we all have a responsibility to do. Now, I get paid to do this, right? So I yep. have to do it at a different level. <laughs> but it is a partnership. And it without is. that partnership, I actually can't do my job. Yeah, and we, we need people to just share information. If something doesn't seem right, say something to someone. Because once an individual kind of gets this idea in their mind that they want to harm themselves or harm others, as they approach getting to the point of actually doing it as they're, they're planning perhaps. And we don't know how long that could be. That could be weeks. That could be months. Sometimes it's even years, but there's this unique thing that starts to occur. Uh, and it's what's been coined threat leakage or as someone is getting closer and closer to doing 
whatever this act is, they start referencing it more and information starts coming out. And, and this has been documented in numerous mass shootings where the, the perpetrators, you know, surviving loved ones was like, yeah, well, they, they started talking more about the leading up to it. Like I wasn't worried until the last few weeks. They still didn't say anything perhaps, but that is hopefully by the time you're hearing the threat leakage, you're not too late. You know, like they haven't, obviously they haven't done it yet, but that is something to, to really look out for. And we want to obviously stop things before it gets any further than that. So what are some indicators for intervention? Yeah. And I want to, I want to just chat about that for a second too, because I think, you know, it's easy to dismiss something, right? It's easy to dismiss. No, that's just this person or no, it's just so-and-so. Or if we go back to the example of your person got the text message in, in the car, that wasn't you, was it? Ha ha. Yeah. I mean, there's enough there to think this person could do something like that, right? And if you, this is what every human being does this. I, I would say it's a rare percentage of people who don't do this, but they resolve it down to something that makes sense, right? Right. If, if it, this, this is how our human brain works. Like we're going to re, we're going to kind of dissolve the frustration or the concern about something into a, oh, this is probably what it was. Yeah. Right. And I, I mean, I think about that as we've taught this over the years, you've mentioned, you know, in the initial entrance of the guy who entered NIU and started shooting at people, your first thought was this is a training exercise. Yeah. I was like, this is a drill. This can't be real. I don't know why I thought that, but that was the first thought that, that that's how our brain works though. I mean, and that's, think about it before an actual situation were to occur. We try to get it to what's the most reasonable reason that this could be going on. And so try not to do that. Try to figure out like, how do I, how do I get connected to some sort of resource? So. So like what, what would be an indication that a person is, you know, about to do something really bad? Maybe it's to themselves or to other people. And this is not an exhaustive list, but there's, you know, and there's millions of things that could be indicators, you know, increased use of drugs and alcohol, depression and withdrawal. Again, I don't, I don't want to uh, add to any, any stigma about mental health that a person is, you know, has struggles with mental health, they're, you know, going to hurt somebody. In fact, it's usually the opposite is they're more likely to be the victims of of violence. Um, But increased or severe mood swings, um, unsolicited talk of previous incidents of violence. This is, you know, again, not two people that do this talking about it on a podcast, but you know, Um, but there's one that I want to mention that, that is, is kind of interesting and that's injustice collection. You know, most of us, you know, in our day-to-day lives, things happen that'll tick us off, right? You're, you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off in traffic. And if you're like me, you'll yell a few choice words and then move on with your day. There's some individuals who just can't let that go. They start personalizing it. You know, that person did that to me on purpose. Or it's almost like it gets to a point where like the universe is just kind of giving me a big middle finger right now. And it's all personal. Then it starts layering the and, next thing, layers, layers right the on top next of Next thing. So when you hear people just like really talk about, again, this isn't necessarily an indication of violence about to happen. It's an indication that a person's really struggling and that they need, they need some help. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's stories too of situations that have happened where somebody's like, well, I want to go visit this place or I want to go on, look at this place or I want to go check out this place. So, I mean, if those are situations where active threat situations have happened in the past and there's not a contextual connection mm-hmm. there, that's something to be worried about too. Yeah. I mean, you know, going to visit places where these situations that have occurred have actually been known to cause future situations. Yeah. They're, the they're scoping things out. Wants to go do that. Yeah. Not for research purposes, but just to be there. 
you know, to experience yeah. that. It's, it's a, that's a, that's a red flag. Yeah. I like, I like that we're talking about these interve- intervention indicators and I think we'll put these into like the description of our podcast here. So, you know, people can yeah. kind of see what these are. Actually, we might even make this PowerPoint in some sections of it available so that people could take a look at it. But it's more about just thinking about some of the things that stand out injustice collection drastic mm-hmm. change of appearance uh, behavior, which is suspect of paranoia. And I, I mean that on, unsolicited talk or that empathy with somebody who's committed an act of violence, those are huge red flags that you should be thinking about. So the other thing too, is I like to just talk about intuition quick. I mean, I think we, again, I was almost just saying this, like you brush off concern, right? You have this intuition, your hairs on the back of your neck kind of stand up. You're concerned about something to the point where you get home and you're sitting on a couch or in a chair and you're like, Oh, this thing is just bothering me. It's festering at me. I'm concerned about it. That's you've gone too far. Your intuition is literally screaming at you inside of your head. And you should, this is the point where I would say you call somebody or you talk to somebody and it doesn't have to be the police or I don't know. It could be anybody, right? It could be uh, an associate that you work with. It could be the Dean of students. It could be, I, you know what? I'm really comfortable with buzz bars yeah. So I'm going to call Buzz or I'm going to text Buzz or I'm comfortable with Leah at the counseling center or I, you know what? I, I actually, I know Joe Peterson pretty well. I'm going to, I'm going to call him or send him an email and just say, Hey, I want to talk through this thing. And, and we're absolutely here to do that for you and help you. Sometimes that resolves the concern and you don't have to go any further. Sometimes yeah. it amps it up and you're like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to look at this a little more. And it doesn't mean, okay, we're calling in the police and the SWAT team. Sometimes it might just be, you should pay attention to that over the next few weeks or the next week or whatever. And then we determine whether or not it's something that you should take. Exactly. But, but get that, make that first contact, right? Yeah. That's really that's, important. That's really the most important part is just getting that first contact. If it ends up being nothing great. If it ends up being a situation where, wow, we actually helped a person who needed help. Great. Even better yet. You yeah. Know? So, and I tell people too, like, you know, if you ever, you ever make a phone call to the police department and you're like, I just, somebody dismissed me. It wasn't what I was expecting. I mean, gosh, I listened to this podcast and it seemed like you were going to be totally fine with me calling. And for some reason that wasn't the case. Send me an email. Yeah. I, I, I'm, we are here for you. We're here to listen. We're here to talk to you. We need to know so that you can feel resolved about the situation. So please don't ever hesitate. If you just go to uwosh.edu forward slash police, there's a little about us section on there and you can just click and email us. So that's a good way to do it. The other thing I want to talk about quickly too is just suspicious or odd things. Like if you see something sitting around or you, you see a, I don't know, a door chained or even a weird chain in a place or just something looks weird. I mean, tell somebody about it, right? Like yeah. I think some of the research we've done with Virginia tech, I mean, the day before that situation occurred, somebody actually saw a guy walking around with chains in the building and nobody reported that, you know? Yeah. So I think, just those simple things. Again, that's hindsight is twenty twenty, but if it seems out of place, it's possible that it's out of place. Well, when I was uh, an undergraduate student in, in Illinois, I was working late in the geology building on that campus one night, and as I was leaving, I noticed in, in one of the hallways this old-looking cooler with like a digital clock on top of it, but like the wires of the clock were all exposed. Wow, and, and to, to give you the timing, this was right after nine eleven happened in two thousand one or two thousand two. I think this was that this would make the during like stand the up. ricin scare and all yeah. of that. Um, 
So I contacted campus security right away because I was like, it's just sitting here. It's out in the open. I don't know what this is, but I'm. it's like here's a ticking clock with wires sticking yeah. out of it. And this turned out it was it was the custodians. They, it was their timer for like floor wax. Where they were doing the floors. Um, and the cooler was their meal for the evening. And it was just an old crappy cooler clock uh, so clock, yeah, wires okay. sticking out of it because it had broken but it still worked and so you know i ended up not being anything alarming or nothing dangerous it was very alarming looking giving the time and the context um and I, I felt bad a little bit that i was like i wasn't trying to accuse the custodian of doing anything i didn't know whose it was but i'm glad that i reached out yeah i think that's a great example of just call us right i mean and even for us like we have a great relationship with the custodians we we work with them all the time yeah. and you know and, and not just that but faculty employees students any of that like we make it into a conversation and absolutely honestly when you get into that moment and you realize what it is it's actually a really great conversation yeah so yeah. and it's yeah. it's a great example to talk about what we're kind of talking about here because that was kind of true for me too there was a a day a number of years ago where there was some camouflage thing sitting next to a tree. And to make this story uh, shorter, uh, we were concerned about it. We didn't know what it was. We checked in with the right areas. Nobody knew what it was. So we actually called a bomb dog in from out of Gamey County and they came and sniffed it and it was fine. And uh, we ultimately opened it up and this was like, I don't know, maybe 12 by 14 inches by maybe six inches deep or whatever. And it was, uh, was paper shot glasses with like a almost empty maple syrup bottle and some vodka. And I was like, oh, that's... I mean, you <laughs> asked a question, you ended up with more questions, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely more questions involved there, but it wasn't horribly concerning, but I'm so glad we got it checked out. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about a lot of sharing information. We've talked about timelines and how things go. And we, I, I've talked about the care team, and I just wanted to just share a little bit more about that. I mean... UW Oshkosh's care team is really kind of a, I'm going to call it like a low level to mid-level type. We want to help our people in our community type of a group that gets together. And so they look at information. So a, a great example, this might be, you know, I live in a residence hall room with another student and I would say three nights out of six nights or six nights, three nights out of seven nights a week, this person comes back and is throwing up in a garbage can because they're drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a great care team oh, referral, absolutely. right? Like I, I'm not sleeping well. This person's drinking a lot. That person needs somebody to intervene and say, Hey, how's it going? Right. They're not necessarily an active threat. They're probably not even close to an active threat, but this team would take that information and maybe, maybe the police department kind of looks up their data and says, Oh, we've actually had contact with this person five times in the last two years for drinking situations, they might need some help with substance use, right? Yeah. And so that's really what the care team is for, for situations like that to other situations where persons maybe had suicidal ideation and could use some help in the m- more severe level type of situation. And so if you were to, to have somebody go to this care team agenda or whatever that is, it would be just the group as the dean of students, the police department, the counseling center, the health center, the provost office, and, and the department of res life. And there's a person from those areas who kind of sits in there and says, you know what? I got this one. I'm going to reach out to the student. We're going to figure out what kind of help they need. And then we kind of coordinate what that looks like. So it's oh. just a good opportunity to to navigate. Well, a- and I think it's great too that we have that on this campus. And I don't know if other universities have something similar but some kind of a of an assessment team or a care team or you know the equivalent where p- 
people can can go and it, so if anybody's listening and you're you're not affiliated with UWO, um, but maybe you're concerned about something like this for your company or your campus or your institution, um, yeah, reach out to maybe human resources or or your local police department and see if if there isn't something like that. How can, how can you get one started? Yeah, and I think that's a great question or statement because they're, I, I would say at a university, it's more likely than not they're going to have some sort of a mm-hmm. team. We call ours care team. I've heard them as behavioral intervention team or stuff like sure. that. So, you know, if you're on a campus, there's definitely a good place to start would be the dean of students or the police department, and they would guide you in the right direction. If you're in a company, I love the human resource piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, your local police department's always a great place yeah. to kind of check out too. That might be a, a good place to start. And they probably would welcome that. They'd welcome some information. So the other team that I did talk about was our threat assessment team. We do have that here on campus and that team really takes next level information. So if there's a, a more of a concerning situation, we would activate that team. I do think um, care team could escalate a situation to the threat assessment team. And then mm-hmm. these are, folks who are a little more trained in how to recognize threat behaviors and how to navigate those and create interventions. And so we have both of those teams here on campus and, and both of those could be reporting mechanisms. That's right. Um, and one thing, you know, when, when you're talking about, and this is kind of to focus more on the, the classroom thing um, or, or, or being at a, an institution like, like a, a university or, well, I guess this is also true for, for, uh, any kind of HR uh, interaction as well on a college campus or a school campus. Uh, people are concerned a bit about FERPA, the, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. So for example, if if I get a phone call from a, an angry parent who wonders why their student is not doing so well in my class, I can't legally talk to them about their legally adult child, you know, yeah. about their, I don't care who's paying for college. I can't, talk about their grades or th- there's that privacy act. However, well, and I think you probably do care, but you also are I, obligated I, by this I, law. I do care, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I, I can't say anything. Um, yeah. That being said, if I have a student comes in cause they're worried about their grade and my interaction with them uh, leaves me curious about their well being, Yeah. I can say something about that. This person seemed really distraught. They seemed really depressed. They seemed very angry. Those types of interactions I can certainly share with other people. I can't talk about what their grade is or, you know, the, the details of that. Um, I know we've, we've heard similar things, uh, at least on this campus, where somebody has to go to, um, you know, an administrative office to, to talk about, like, you know, tuition or something. You're talking about money. That's a great way to stress someone out. FERPA protects that individual, uh, their information about like you know, how much money they might owe or something like that. It, it doesn't necessarily inhibit though that whoever they were talking to about like, yeah, the person seemed really upset. That's totally fine. So if, if you have somebody, um, you know, again, on a college campus who comes to you because of a, of a class or a, or an administrative issue, they are protected, but you're also protected to share your, observations observations yeah. uh, the vibe of the conversation yeah. you had with them and that can be very telling very very telling uh with you know what's going on with the person yeah i like that and i think you know if you're not sure then talk to a colleague again yeah. it's just an opportunity to say hey like this is concerning to me and this behavior was weird and they might 
again, they might increase or reduce your concern about what that situation was. Or, you know what, if it really wasn't that concerning, but you were a semi-concerned, then mm-hmm. watch the next interaction. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, the last thing that we really just want to share about is a little bit of our norm. So I'm going to let you talk about this, but I always appreciate how you you, you really share about this airplane example. Oh, yeah. So, so you know, in the aftermath of the NIU shooting, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff I was going through that I think any survivor is going to go through. You, you go through a period where you might be really uncomfortable in certain social settings. Um, for me, it was a couple months where I wasn't, I felt compelled to face a door. And I've later learned this is a common thing with law enforcement, right? When you go to a restaurant, you got to face the door. Um, I had to go, I went through that a little bit. I just didn't feel comfortable not knowing about my surroundings as much. Uh, when when we'd go to a movie together, my wife and I, I'd, I'd be a little uncomfortable at first. Like, okay, well, how do I get out of here? Uh, and that used to bother me because one thing most survivals, survivors of these attacks will tell you is you have to get used to what's called the new normal. You have now survived this. It's something you're going to carry with you. Uh, and so you have to adjust to the new normal. And you don't like that at first. I didn't want, I wanted old normal. I didn't want new normal. I wanted that carefree kind of attitude. Um, and I was just getting ready to finish grad school when that happened. And so it was maybe six months, six or eight months later, I was getting on a plane to go do some, some research. And I had to start chuckling to myself because what do they have you do on an airplane before they even take off is they do the, you know, the safety demonstration, how to do an emergency water landing over the Midwest. Sure. Right. Um, but it's like, they don't even let you get off the ground without going through this safety stuff. There's nothing wrong with going to a movie and taking not even five seconds to just look around and see your surroundings. Uh, when was the last time you actually noticed an illuminated exit sign above a door? They're there and we don't even see them. Uh, you know, they're, they're required to be there, you know, but we don't even pay attention to them. Take that minute, not even a minute, take those few seconds and pay attention to those. This is that personal responsibility of safety is knowing how to get at, get to a safe space if you need to or get out of a dangerous one. Um, and then there's something else I started kind of doing that helped a lot too was we are so used to being creatures of habit. Our day-to-day routines, uh, we get comfort in those day-to-day routines. Yeah. But in doing so, we sometimes get so kind of stuck in the cog of the wheel that we don't notice what's going on around us. Well, guess what? Everybody around you is going through their daily routine too. You're all kind of sitting next to each other doing your own thing at the same time. So what I started doing a little bit of was changing it up just enough to kind of see how everything else, how the machine was working. You know, maybe if I walk to work, usually I'll take the north side of the street. Well, take the south side once. And you're going to notice everybody else walking and doing their routine. And it just makes you a little more alert when something deviates from your surroundings. If you have a weekly meeting and you all sit in the same chair, sit in a different chair, it messes everybody up, which is always fun. But uh, it, it kind of allows you to see how things are moving in your absence in a way. It gets you to step outside of yourself for a little bit and it helps you improve your observations. Um, again, as we said at the top of this, not to make you paranoid or nervous all the time or hyper alert it just lets you kind of hone in on how is this space around me normally functioning and how can I tell when something is dysfunctional? 
Yeah, and I was just thinking too, be careful about that whole meeting situation because oh, yeah. uh, you know if you sit in somebody's seat like that, oh, that can that some, can turn ugly real quick. Yeah, parking in parking spots where people park, like all that yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, so. <laughs> but no, the other piece I like to talk about here too is you know if you ever go to a restaurant or you're in a shopping place or something like that and you you don't have permission, like maybe, maybe you're even at a concert right and you're at a certain spot and then there's this emergency exit areas or. Mm-hmm it's in the place where they're cooking the food or it's behind the cashier register. Don't just go behind those things normally, but in an emergency situation, you absolutely have access to those areas where you wouldn't necessarily have permission to go. I mean, I I don't know why, but I always picture red Robin. Um, You come in the restaurant, right. And you're kind of sitting there and you can kind of see into the kitchen. Maybe this is why I picture that, but you can see into the kitchen there's a lot of access into that place and there's always at least one exit out of the kitchen. So if, if bad person comes in the front door and they have a gun and they're going to start threatening to shoot or they're shooting at people, do you have access to go through the kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Absolutely. And and think about that in any setting you're in, just as you think about that pause and do the five second thing, take 15 or 20 seconds, right? And literally think, where are my exits? And if I don't normally have permission, your brain doesn't go to there's an exit there. Think Mm -hmm. about it for a second because that might be your safest bet out. And take shooting out of this situation, put fire in place. Yeah. Same type of thing, right? You've got to figure out what are my exits out of here in case a fire situation happens so that we can be If you're in a restaurant and a fire breaks out in front of the front door for some reason, yeah, you're going to get out however you can. And it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it could be any number of things. So. As we, as we think about and we wrap up this, I, I guess, part one of uh, this active threat preparedness response type of discussion, the idea here is just to be thinking about how we're all walking around in this giant thing, right, this giant cog. Uh, people are carrying a lot of things, and I think we talk about this in a lot of trainings. Everybody's carrying something. Yeah. Somebody needs a, a conversation. So it, it often is not necessarily going to be a dangerous situation that we're trying to thwart or stop. They might just need somebody to say, hey, how's it going today, right? And right. it could be your coworker. It could be a student. It could be somebody that's a friend of yours that seems off. It could be somebody super close to you that you might be like, hey, you might reach out to another friend and say, like, this person, something's not right. Yeah. They might be waiting for you to recognize it and say something, right? Yeah. And so I guess the idea of this discussion is just to think about how do you reach out? How do you connect? How do you ask the right questions? Who do you give the information to if you if you end up in a situation where you're not sure what to do? And that's where we really just wanted to chat about this in this part one of this uh, discussion here. And so that's really the end of this one. And yeah. uh, in part two, we're going to talk about if you're caught in a situation where you're involved in an active threat situation, how do you respond to that? How do you right. act in the moment? Right. right. Any additional thoughts? Uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening and... Um Please feel free to reach out if you have any further questions. If there's something within this topic that uh, wasn't discussed that you'd like to know more about, please uh, please don't hesitate. Yeah, and also we're going to have opportunities for training, so watch for emails and things like that. And if you're not from UW Oshkosh or uh, you're looking for a training like this, I mean, reach out to your local authorities. Absolutely. They might have something like that too. So thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you in part two if you stick around.